Today on Early Music Monday, we get to have a fantastic conversation with British soprano Helen Ashby, who sings in several ensembles, including Stile Antico, fantastic early music ensemble. She's also the singing instructor for the boy choristers at Westminster Abbey. This is Early Music Monday. So I'm really excited for this interview because I think that there is a strong link and connection to not just learning musical skills through early music, but also singing technique, like learning good, healthy singing technique through early music. And I'm fascinated about the the boy chorister and now there's several cathedrals who have girl choristers as well but the childhood chorister training has always just fascinated me and blown my mind a little bit so i'm really pumped about this interview and uh to share it with all of you before we start though a little bit about stile antico cool thing about stile antico is you know when i first heard of and when I first was thinking about you know, early music ensembles and early music stuff, I thought I was introduced to the Talis Scholars, and that was kind of like the UK's early music group. And then there's a couple over here, and I was introduced to you know the Blue Heron and the Bird Ensemble, and several others, and I, and then. When I was in London and we went, to, we went to a Stile Antico concert, and I was, at first, I, I, I just was so clueless and ignorant, I guess. And so I didn't realize, I, well, I guess I had a perception of the British choral scene in London, in and around London, being very similar to the American, and even more specifically, Utah choral scene where there's like one or two really high-level ensembles, and then everyone else is, it's sort of like a semi-professional choir or amateur choir. I didn't, I was completely ignorant to the fact that all the ensembles over there are high, high, high level. At least, you know, any of the ones where they are professional ensembles, they're, they're all in the same league, you know, with different priorities. You could argue that some are better than others or whatever, and, and I'm sure that's true. But generally speaking, it's not like you have these two professional choirs in your city or one and then a lot of amateur community choir, choirs. And that's kind of what I was expecting. So at first, I was like, Stile Antico, this will be interesting. I'm not sure. I never heard of them. And then I left going, holy crap, they're unbelievable. They're just as bit as good as, <laughs> you know, all the other ensembles. And then, you know, that really showed my ignorance, and then I had to kind of figure out. And then I went and did my research and said, oh, okay, wow, there's just a ton of ensembles here, and they all kind of have their niche and their approach and slightly different um 
priorities of the ensemble. And so that's what's cool about Stile Antico, as you'll hear in the interview, where they don't, they're conductorless. And so they sing this repertoire conductorless without, it's, and it's not always just, you know, one person per part. It's 12 singers, and it's, it's just a really cool, interesting dynamic and a unique dynamic that I think adds a lot to the choral world, for lack of a better word. I don't know. What am I trying to say? The choral, the choral output, the choral canon, it has a very awesome and unique place. So I've grown to love Stile Antico. And their albums are fantastic. So that's why I'm so excited to finally have been able to sit down with someone from the group and talk about it a little bit, get a bird's eye view to the inside of how they work and how they operate and their approach to this fantastic rep. So without any more loafing around, listen to me ramble, we'll turn now to our interview with Helen Ashby. Okay. Perfect. Helen, thank you so much for for joining me. I feel honored. So <clears throat> I've heard Stile Antico a lot and seen all the videos and things and I've I've been able to study for about six weeks in London um, oh, with BYU's choral department as a graduate student. And so it's just like I was over there and so it's just so great to have as many guests on from over there as possible because I just loved it. So, oh, great. I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah. So, I have a couple. So, first of all, why don't you just tell me? I would love to hear your story of how you know you got into music and how you decided, you know, this is what I want to do for a living because there's, <laughs> there's a big <laughs> like mental jump that has to happen to, t- to take that leap. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, my family's very musical. So, I kind of grew up in a musical household. Um, and we always learned lots of instruments and things like that. Um, not so much singing at home, but um, when I was about nine or ten, um, uh, I just saw an, ad- saw an advert for a girls' choir that was being started. So me and my sisters joined that uh, and then really just got really into it from there. And actually the director of that choir, she really liked all this kind of repertoire, the Renaissance, so we did a lot of the early music, the Renaissance stuff. Um, and I just loved it from that age. And I think pretty much that's... I knew what that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. That. It just like hit the ground running and never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. So when, when you were young singing, um, because I know that the tradition has been that a lot of those chorister schools have pred- predominantly been male only. So what, what was that like and what were your opportunities like? Like what was that choir that you joined and how was yeah. that compared to maybe some of your male – colleagues so to speak at that age yeah, yeah yeah sure um well i think that's partly why this um woman that set it up she, she decided to do that because she thought that was very unfair and this was in i don't know late 80s early 90s so um at that time i think maybe maybe one or two cathedrals were just starting to have girls choirs as well but it was very unusual um mm. and it was very much still uh boys thing um that's yeah. still changing slowly even now um but yeah. i think so yeah, it was on. It, we were, I was lucky that I grew up in Oxford and I happened to have this girls' choir, um, because certainly the opportunities then weren't really there for girls in that way. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And it. Yeah. I, I remember hearing, even just like weeks ago, about Windsor 
right? Is that yeah, right? That that's right. they're a lot, starting to have girls choristers and stuff. And yeah, Windsor and St John's Cambridge as well. In the last couple of months, both of those have announced that they're now going to be mixed. You know, and I think that's partly partly as a result of the schools that are attached to mixed schools. So right, the schools have also said, well, that's not really fair. You can't have you know sure. the boys, and um, it kind of doesn't make sense in a certain way. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this just leads me to a bunch of questions. So we might just jump all over the place. But so because that lets me, I mean, I taught, I teach, so I have a professional choir, and then I teach high school choir, but I also taught junior high, just like 12 to 14 year olds for like four years before that. And so there's significant pedagogical advantages of rehearsing the genders separate. I think, yeah. especially then because of the voice change. Yeah. What, what in terms of the girl choristers and boy choristers being together, is it that they're young enough to where their voices can still kind of be in the same range? Or, like, how does that work, do you think, as a vocal pedagogue yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think the, in terms of the cathedrals, the ones that are doing it, they, well, it's actually, it's, it's really interesting. There's lots of discussion at home at the moment about all this and the best ways to do it. And so sure. It, in the past, some of the other some of the cathedrals have had a separate girls' choir, and they've tended to be older girls. So maybe mm. I don't know, eleven to eighteen, or secondary school we have in, at home. Uh, yeah. And the boys, of course, have to be under thirteen because anything <laughs> after that, and it's, it's all everything changes. It's the jungle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, but the, the, the latest uh, uh, colleges and choirs like Windsor. That's going to be the same the, the same age bracket, and that's just because mm. of the schools. I mean, a lot of it is linked to where the kids come from for the choir. Right, right. So that will be under thirteens for the girls and the boys. Um, so yeah. I think there's girls go through a voice change in some in, of, of sorts as well. It's obviously not as dramatic as yeah. boys, but they do. Of course, they they have physical changes that affect their voice through that time. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I don't wonder. I wonder what that you know as a male person who studied like I am so into the whole voice technique thing because yeah. of my own musical upbringing I had brilliant mentors but not vocalists and so I had like yeah. a lot of bad habits and so I am like okay this this is what I this is how it feels for me I'm really good at teaching young adolescent males because I was there yeah. But yeah. teaching young adolescent females, I'm just like, I have no idea what your voice change feels like. That's such a wild yeah. concept. So what would you do? What, what is your approach, I guess, when – I mean, I, I don't know how much you work with changing voices versus, you know, pre-change yeah. voices. But what was it like for you in, in the, the female voice change phenomenon? Yeah. <laughs> I, think the, I think the difference – well, it, it, to some extent, every single voice change is different anyway. So there's not yeah. like – you know, I see it with the boys I work with. Everyone's voices always change in different ways, you know. Yeah. So everything's going to be slightly different. But I think with girls, they tend to obviously, they don't have the same issue of their ranges changing as much. You mm. might add a little bit on gradually and learn to use it more effectively. And, and you'll end up with something more powerful. But in the meantime, it might be more breathy in that area, mm. just as things are growing and just because of the way the voice is growing, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I do work a lot with changing voices, actually. And Cool. You know, increasingly nowadays, boys' voices are, are changing, often changing earlier anyway. Yeah. Um, just because they're getting better food, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apart from anything else. So, yeah. Um, boys, you know, and when the choruses, they, they leave age 13, but pretty much 
every year group, 50-50% will have already changed by the time they leave. So, oh, wow. And even when you, and boys' voices are changing all the time anyway, even when they're coming at eight or nine, they're starting to, you can hear them starting to change. So yeah. um, it, I think the, the most, one of my, my I've, I feel one of my main jobs is just to keep, keep them doing it healthily, number one, but also yeah. keep them interested and excited and not that they don't think this is the end of the world. It's an exciting <laughs> new chapter rather than yeah. losing something. Yeah. Oh, and I remember, I remember when uh, Tenebrae came over to BYU when I was there and got to do some question and answer with Nigel Short and stuff. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, it's dramatic. You know, these kids' voices change and they start crying and all this stuff. Like, oh my, talk about trauma, trauma. <laughs> but like, but yeah, that's really awesome. So, yeah. so I guess for our listeners, uh, Helen is a singing teacher for the choristers at Westminster. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you came into that position and then maybe some of the ways that you do keep them excited about it. Like what are some things you do on a day in day out basis to, to kind of help them through that? Yeah. Um, so I've always really admired that choir. And I think when I started getting into this music, 10 or 11 years old, I used to, used to listen to all their recordings and I thought, yeah, oh, I would love to be, uh, in a chorister. Now, obviously I wasn't a boy and, you know, so that was a big <laughs> problem already. <laughs> But right. so I thought, now my dream job, I've got it there. At least I'm teaching the kids there. So, it's yeah, great. so, so I cool. teach, um, So I'm just the, vo the vo vocal te uh, teacher. So I teach them singing lessons. Uh, and obviously they have a director of music. So we obviously work very closely together. Um, and as, as you said, kind of often quite a lot of it is negotiating voice change, particularly with the old years. And it, it really can be something, I can totally see why it can be something traumatic because these boys work, so hard it's like the thing that they do choir is the thing they do and they you know, they board they they live in the school uh they're um, they, they they have other things going on but really their life is quiet like that's they think yeah. they're and they're doing a professional standard job really you know yeah it's unreal at a level of that adult professionals are doing and if you go from that and suddenly what feels like overnight for them it's just taken away and they can't can't do it anymore. It can be very difficult. Um, oh, yeah. We're, we're lucky in, in Westminster. They, they've always had this tradition where the, they also have some boy altos. So there's the, op mm. the option for some of the other most. I think that's possibly the only cathedral choir in, in the UK where that's been always been. Oh, wow. So it, that's quite useful because it means when if boys' voices are sort of slipping down, they can still be a part of the choir. That's, that's yeah. Great. And... In the last couple of years, we even we've had a couple that have been a tenor or a bass by the time they've left, and they've had the opportunity to just sing tenor and bass with with the adults. I, I think that's been because I think everything obviously everything's been different because of COVID. So sure, um, sure. Hopefully that will be able to continue, but it's I don't know. We'll see what happens. But that's yeah. one way of keeping them interested. That at least they're still involved. Um, yeah, their life's not over. When they, when yeah, they're exactly. like, okay, cool, that was fun. Now go find a new. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. Scrappy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, that's been really good that they can do that. Um, I also do because when I teach them, mostly I teach them individually, and so we work on lots of solo songs. And uh, we've started a tradition of doing, you know, once or twice a term, they'll do a little recital to each other of their solo cool. pieces. You know, boys they like to shop, so that's good. They're always keen oh, to yeah. do that, and so that's nice. And the ones whose voices are changing. Hopefully they get excited that they can show to their, you know, peers that they're really growing up and that they've got this, you know, new low notes to show off. And so that's yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So how often do you meet with 
since you work with them mostly individually, do you work with them ever as a whole group too? And so, how often do you um, meet with them individually or, or whatever and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah so I, I teach them, um, each of them I'll teach once a week, about half okay. an hour. Um, Perfect. Occasionally I teach them in pairs. If that really is more dependent on my schedule and how easy it is for me to fit them all in. Um, so in addition to that, so they each have a half an hour singing lesson each week. And in addition to that, I take them for about a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes of a group warm up once a week. So they mm. every they sing every morning. They have song school. They have practice in the song school at eight o'clock in the morning. And on Wednesdays, I'll come in and do a bit a slightly longer warm up with them, just as a kind of awesome. things that they could do as a group sound. You know. I mean, obviously they cool. do little warm ups anyway with the director of music when I'm not there as well. Sure, sure. And I wonder. So, oh man, I just am, am spinning with questions because again, I think that that's such a it's such a unique opportunity and cool thing to develop the technique of even before the voice change in the middle of the voice change of like the muscles growing properly. Like I, I grew up as an athlete. So we'd play basketball when we were little, we'd play with a smaller ball because it helps yeah. you get the muscles working the right way instead yeah. of just launching this massive rock up <laughs> 10 yeah. feet and the hoops lower. So like, you, yeah. so what, yeah. what kind of things do you focus on primarily? What do you find yourself focusing on? if you had maybe one, two, or three main things that you come back to kind of over and over again, what are some technical things that you work with them pretty well, regularly on? Yeah, pretty much with choruses, it's, well, two two particular, no, three, let's say three main things, I'd say. One, yeah. breathing, obviously it always has to be about the breath. And, yeah. making, and especially with kids, because they always get this idea that you breathe in and you go like this. <clears throat> and that's the first, getting rid of all that. <laughs> Yeah, on picking sometimes, and that takes quite a while. I'm just making sure that they understand low abdominal breathing and checking that the posture is all good. Um, the second thing is particularly with choruses, and not just choruses actually, adults that sing in choirs a lot, you often end up with a lot of tongue tension because they tend to pull mm. their tongue back and trap the sound in so they can hear themselves a bit more. You know, yeah, so interesting. Get the sound in here, well, and so it's trying to make sure that's released and forward, and they trust that that they you, because singing is. You can't see what's going on, and, and what you hear yeah. is never what everyone else is hearing. So, right, um, that can be quite difficult. Um, so that's the other thing, and then also just really accessing their head voice and, and being able to mm. like safely access the high notes, and so they're not reaching up for them, but using the head. Yeah, voice. yeah. Wow, that and that's amazing because again, you'd think okay, there's got to be some secret formula, but it it comes down to those same things always, yeah. and. And that's interesting that you mentioned tongue tension because I never heard of tongue tension until I got to graduate school of just, I mean, my, my conductors, like I said, were brilliant keyboardists and musicians, composers, but tongue tension, I was like, what are you even saying? What are we talking? Yeah. Why are we talking? <laughs> you know? So, so I, and I'm, so I don't know if this is not a prepared question. So if you're not sure, but I've been fascinated because I think just my non-researched gut reaction observation that the English dialect lends itself to less tongue tension naturally than the American dialect. I wonder if you think that's true or not. Or, or like if you think that spoken dialect or how you think spoken dialect influences their habits. I definitely, definitely think there's an influence. Definitely. And, uh, you know, it's something I've, thought about quite a lot actually um and i always thought i wish someone would do some proper research um yeah but i think english vowels are very low we tend to be quite with our, our tongues are often quite low and actually it's quite i would say we say oh, oh it's quite 
tongue is quite fat anyway. Mm. I think I, I always think blame our, our dialects for tongue tension, but it's interesting you guys blame your dialects. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the R, the R, oh, her, 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 her. Yeah. And it's like so, and the L, we make an L with the back of our tongue. Okay. L, you know, so it, yeah. yeah, I wonder, it's it's super interesting. I'd wonder if, if maybe we should both do some more research and yeah. have yeah. another episode because I find it so fascinating about, okay, how do you speak and how does that influence and yeah. anyway. And but. the distance between them. And, you know, I think, you know, Australians, people often say Australians, Italians, they have it's kind of so front, the front of the mouth there's mm. the language and america to a certain extent as well it's so sure. much further forward in the in the face you know that really helps i think for the singing yeah yeah i wonder if we could just take the best parts of everyone's dialect yeah. and then <laughs> just put it together that's really cool so so with there then and and whether you want to take it into the singing technique itself or not but what benefits do you find all right i guess before i ask that question of what um, I've been to a couple services at Westminster um, and a couple of concerts, but on a day in day out basis, how often are those boys performing service or concerts? Yeah, so they they would do uh, Monday, Wednesday, so they get a day off on Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, just the older ones on Friday, and then mm. a couple on Sunday. So six or seven services a week at a normal nice. week. Um, that services are well, I don't know, probably maybe up to an hour long obviously it's not all singing you know so they sure. probably sing maybe 15 20 minutes of that at the most um concerts they would probably do a few couple of times a term it's been obviously the last couple of years have been very sure so it's, <laughs> it hasn't really been right. happening at all um but they have big christmas concerts of course and then they normally would go on tour um at least once a year probably oh wow and how long is that tour usually oh probably, in a normal probably year depends. probably like a week, a week somewhere, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe nice. Two. And and of that, what what's what's kind of the percentage of? Because I know it, and I, I just think it's so cool that there's this tradition of, you know, you can sing music that was written in that cathedral six, seven hundred years ago. Yeah. Whereas yeah. here, we're like we weren't even a thought six or seven hundred years ago, <laughs> so we have no none of that tradition. But what what is if you could say like what percentage of rep? repertoire that they do is like early considered early music would you say well um they quite specialize in a lot of early music actually so i'd say it probably yeah. is maybe 50 percent perhaps you know oh wow that's probably as much as that um and the great thing with kids is that they just do what you know they just think everything's normal so yeah them, they wouldn't think of it as different to anything else they do so yeah yeah great and what See, because I also, because I talked to Owen Park about that too, about, yeah. so what, what is your view of early music? And he was like, I don't know. It's just all part of the canon. I was like, man, that yeah. is, so what benefit do you think, if, if you could describe maybe the benefits of having early music that much of a part of their musical education, what benefits do you think come specifically from early music that maybe help their performing of other time periods yeah um, i suppose I, I do think like owen said it's we don't we, i wouldn't really kind of distinguish as much between them in, in lots of ways but um i think in some ways it's partly just about being part of that tradition as he said it's like nice to say yeah. oh this was written 500 years ago but we're still singing it you know it's been sung pretty much every day since then or whatever you know, that's yeah. and and also they can then talk about the hist history a lot of it um, yeah. Sometimes they're taking, I've got some of the kind of, um, you know, the original facsimiles, copies of the mm. original manuscript of like Bird, four part mass or something. Sure. So if they're doing it in their, in their services, I'll bring that in just to show them. It's like, oh, see if you recognize this tune they sing. And I'm like, all oh, right. 
And then you kind of talk, talk awesome. about how it was composed originally written down without bar lines and how that might influence that you might be a bit more longer phrase shapes and mm. not thinking of it too much four square. And obviously that can then translate to later music anyway. But. Yeah, absolutely. I think that long phrase shape is so crucial and yeah. is such a, a advanced topic that if taught younger, I think can really influence and, and your technique, yeah. right? You have to have that breath yeah. really yeah. sustaining through. and Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's good cool. for kind of long phrases, breathing, definitely. And actually, I think, you know, we've done some workshops with Stile with um, kind of older, well, adults and also older students who aren't from this tradition, who haven't been singing mm. in church choirs or whatever. And they find singing early music is really difficult, actually. And, you know, yeah. the kids just take it for granted because it's just what they've done. But, but if you haven't grown up with that, I think, People can find it very difficult. There's quite slow-moving tactics and keeping mm. the like the breath flowing, keeping the interest in the music, even just keeping count can can feel quite different right. from later music. Yeah. So as you, you know, to segue into your work with Stile and then, you know, other other aspects of your career, what do you do? What do you find helps you keep that kind of? I mean, as you sung as a young person, but as when, when you're teaching those maybe older students or older singers or non-traditional yeah. <laughs> singers, what do you do to kind of help them tap into that, those things? That's a good question. I mean, you, can, you have to just work a lot on the music in depth, I think. It just takes mm. quite a bit of time. And it, it's, it's worth starting with a piece which is more homophonic in character so mm. that they can at least kind of feel like they're progressing to something quite quickly. But yeah. I think it has, we've done some, yeah, it has been, it's quite difficult to do, yeah. I mean, you could do things like singing long phrases on zzz or just to kind of get the idea of the longer shape, you know. Yeah, and I think that idea of singing something more homophonic is, maybe comes from a little bit more familiar place for them, yeah. so that they can yeah. not feel so isolated, because yeah, yeah, that independence of, can be super terrifying of, yeah. I am literally on an island by myself yeah. <laughs> right now. Yeah. And so that's that's great. That's cool. And I think that that would, you know, there's a lot of great rep that does that. That would be really good for any age choir, I think, that yeah. would be a great place to start. So that's cool. So with your work with Stile, um, I would love to hear kind of, I don't I don't know a ton. I, I love that Stile is this kind of democratic I mean, it definitely has a conductor and a leader, but that, that it's conductorless in its feel and its approach. And how do what do rehearsals look like for you guys? And how do you approach something? Yeah. And you're like, hmm, maybe this should be like this, or maybe it should be like this. And I don't know. what it, I would love to get a kind of bird's eye view yeah. into the Stile process. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're a group of 12, um, 12 singers, but we don't have a conductor or a, a leader. So we work democratically um and it means that yeah the rehearsals can be quite a slow process compared to most british groups where you sort of turn up and you're given the music and you have maybe a couple of rehearsals and that's it you're ready to go um because the conductors like tells you what to do yeah, so yeah. um we, we end up probably talking a lot more than we sing and we have discussions so we'll sing a piece through, well we always start out looking at a text the text of the piece then we'll sing yeah. it a couple of times we have a new rule we just sing everything like twice through to give everyone a chance to think their ideas and yeah. then we'll start thinking with ideas and we should try this and we should try that. And and that's one of the real pleasures of this music is that when the composers wrote it down, they didn't write in like speed markings or dynamics or um, right. 
is, really. And that's not because they didn't do them. I think it's just that they it was more up to the performer. So it's yeah. This is because the performer uh, got to choose that. You know. Yeah. That's fantastic. And what, what do you think are the benefits? I think that's a fascinating. I, I think that there's pros and cons to every approach as, as anything. But what do you think are some of the, the pros, I guess, that come yeah. from rehearsing that way as opposed to the conductor and then yeah. you go, the conductor giving it and then you go? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, the, the cons are, are definitely a bit more time intensive. But I think other than that, I'm most of the rest of it is prose but it's only from like a selfish point of view from a singer it's really nice to be able to have a say and be able to yeah sure ideas and um, be part of the process and you know of course this music the polyphonic music is is democratic in nature it's not a tune and an accompaniment it's everyone is important and so it lends itself nicely to, to this approach and it's it's also it just means that the singers are i think we're a little bit more invested in the performance and you really get to kind of study the music in depth in the, in the same way that a conductor would but normally it would yeah. be one person at the front that knows the music absolutely in depth, and then the singer's just doing what they're told, and and that's quite a different feeling as a singer to be part of that. Yeah, and I think I wonder does that does that affect, you know, because I've sung in ensembles that are both, you know, okay, let's just do this together, and then I've been on both sides of the podium, yeah. all kind of right. But I wonder like if you think. Hmm, what am I trying to ask here? Do you think that there's a, I guess if I could ask it, what do you think the audience experiences that's different in that approach versus maybe a conductor's approach? Do yeah. you think it translates to the audience and how does that come across? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. I think, um, obviously it very much depends on the group and everything else, but I think probably 90% of the audience wouldn't notice a difference in terms of the sound. Sure. I think there is a difference, but I think it's pretty subtle. Pretty, um, yeah. But I do think in terms of visuals, it's more like watching a string quartet because you see mm. people, in, like we tend to interact interact with each other more than with the audience, really. But it's kind of like you're, you're being invited into this mm. little group, you know, as, an, as a watcher. And of course, otherwise as an audience member, the first thing in the stage you see is someone's back. <laughs> Right, right. It's, it's kind of weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's it's the this kind wall, of, right? Yeah, it's a kind of this wall. Somehow between the audience yeah. and the music, you know. And then you get the singers, mostly, if they're good singers, they should be watching the conductor. So they're all focusing their attention on, on the conductor as well. So it's. Right. I think in, from, from a performance point of view, I actually think it's quite nice for the audience. They often say yeah. they kind of really like that they see how we interact with each other and um, enjoy the music together a bit more. Yeah. That's great. I think that's cool. What are some, what do you think are some challenges of, because, you know, it's really interesting, again, to, to reference this idea, and this is really kind of a reductive view of British conductors and conducting, but I remember Nigel said that conducting, uh, to study conducting is actually relatively new in the UK as compared yeah. to the United States. And so I kind of have this, this view. When I went over there, I was like, it is really interesting. It's like the choir are the performers and the conductor is yeah. just kind of there to keep everyone together. But I think some American conductors, it's almost like the conductor's the performer and the choir's their instrument. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, but I don't get that sense at all from UK groups. So whether there's a conductor or not, 
you know, and sometimes I watch UK conductors. I'm like, I have no idea how to follow that. (laughs) I'm like, what is happening? Like, how are you all perfectly together? What is, what is going on? So, like, what does that do for you as a singer? What does it do having a conductor versus not? And how do you, how does that put your mindset when you're then, okay, it's performance time, here I go. Yeah. What's kind of going through your head there? It's interesting, yeah. I, I, I think there is, um, yeah, I think there is a problem with British conductors. Not all of them, of course, by any means. Sure, but, oh, yeah, There are definitely some where it's like, you know, there are some that everyone jokes and says, ignore him like a hawk, you know. <laughs> right. Just don't watch this. <laughs> right, right. And they're like brilliant rehearsal technicians and brilliant musicians, but the gesture itself is maybe not quite as refined yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, and, and, and with the, you know, certainly with the choral the church tradition, they're often absolutely incredible organists, but that's not really yeah. necessarily the same skill set. So. Right. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of the performance, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I suppose I, when I'm singing with Steely, I suppose we sort of we. I do feel like it's more of our performance, definitely. Mm. But at the same time, it's still it's still enjoyable. And like, there are some amazing conductors out there who really yeah can really help to lift a performance. You know, sometimes if you're feeling a bit tired or whatever, if there's someone in front of you who's really giving you lots of energy, yeah. and the best conductors in in that I like working for are ones who it's like a two-way process you know you feel that they're yeah. kind of really listening and they're like yeah i like that I like that you know it's a kind of generous conductor not just yeah like this bit needs to be quiet this bit you know, yeah. right right <laughs> and i wonder what that does to your i mean it's different when you're when you're at the professional singing level like you are it maybe doesn't or maybe that's my misperception misconception but like what does that do to your vocal production like, oh, do you yeah, feel definitely. like your production is different in Stile versus when there's a conductor? And yeah, how I so? Think, yeah, definitely. I think that that can be, in a way, one of the harder things with Stile is because we're all responsible for the making sure that we're all coming in together and everything else. And so sometimes that can cause, you know, you sort of, you wait and you hold, and there's a bit more tension, and that can be more difficult. Oh, wow. And you get a good conductor, really, and sometimes the conductors, their body language is so bad that it's worse, makes it worse, but often, <laughs> you know, they put you at your ease and it can be easier to sing well, I think. Interesting. See, I would have actually thought that it was opposite, that with Stile, you're feeling more free. Yeah. But but that's interesting. It, 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 that, it is that, that as well, yeah. But also, I think we have to be, the, the, the other thing is, I think you're right, sometimes it does, and it's really nice to feel that you can be free, but also we do have to be quite disciplined as well. Like when we've decided that we're going to do something, for example, singers always love singing loud, you know, all of us Right. Do. So if we decided that right this this page is going to be really quiet for a page and a half, we have to really make sure you do it because you haven't got someone in front that's going. Shh, you know, is reminding right. you to do it. And that that can be yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, and you're and you're you're so. I wonder what that does to to the like the listening, too. Because I, you know, I think, from my experience, in school, I always had a conductor, and it was just like watch me, watch me together yeah. with me. And it was almost kind of like we subconsciously tuned everybody else out because yeah. we were just so laser on yeah. the conductor as opposed to like, listen out, listen out, listen yeah. out. Yeah. And so I wonder what that does to the voice too or to your performance well, as well. I think, yeah, certainly in Stile, but even when I'm teaching choruses as well, well, I do kind of say you should listen more than you think, you know? Yeah. Really be listening 80% of the time and listen to yourself 20% or sing, you know? But yeah. actually, especially particularly for in rehearsals, because 
we're singing a piece, but you're also thinking about what you want to do in terms of the interpretation, and you're thinking about listening to the other parts and how it fits with that, and it's so much more important, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's wild. And so in a typical Stile rehearsal, like how often do you all rehearse, and for how long? And is it project-based, or do yeah, you guys meet pretty regularly? Yeah, it's and uh, sort of in a, in a normal year, or in like normal year, aim yeah. for, nothing is quite yeah. normal. But, and there never was a normal year anyway. But, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we would do like, we'd probably normally do two new programs in a year, two, and we'd have mm. two or three programs kind of running. Two of them might be mm. a week. You know? And for each new program, we'd have 10 rehearsals, and there'd be three hour oh, wow. rehearsals each, so 10 times three, you know, which is yeah. like, really a lot for a British group. Like, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, but we work very slowly, so we can't have, we need it. Yeah, which is which is great. Like we don't have enough. However much you put down, it's never enough. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, because I I can't remember. I we saw when we were over there, we saw you guys perform. I can't remember the program or even where we were, but mm -hmm. yeah, I just remember being like, uh, "How have I now heard of you all? This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it was so great." So, how often do you come to the states? You're you're in the states right now. Yeah, um, are, is it with Stile, or are you kind of on your own? Yeah. Or what are you yeah, guys yeah, doing yeah, over no, here? Yeah. So this is our first trip back to the states since COVID. So we're just really pleased that we made it back. You know. Yeah, it's amazing. That we landed. Um, this is quite <laughs> a short trip. So we've just got three concerts on this trip. This is the last one tonight. Um, oh wow! And then we're back in April, so we'd normally come sort of two, twice a year, generally. Wow, fantastic! And do you usually hit all over? Or do you say relatively eastern United States, or kind of depend? Be, yeah, it, it depends. It tends to be east and central generally. Mm -hmm. We've done. We have been to the West Coast twice, and we were meant to go in um, May twenty twenty. That didn't happen, which we were all very gutted about. We wanted to live in yeah. California. Sometime, you know. Yeah, go hit the um, beach and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but generally, it tends to be more like East Coasty. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find, I, I'm super interested in this. Do you find, what do you find is the reception of the audience typically? Or do you find that there's a difference between some of your Midwest, middle part of the country versus the East Coast and yeah. that kind of thing? I think it really depends on. Um, where we are, like there are some, so we go like really regularly, we go to Boston because that's like yeah. the big early music festival. And of course, yeah. like that audience is super knowledgeable and it's always an incredible audience, you know, and they, they were very attentive and they have very like in-depth questions afterwards and things like that. And yeah. maybe if they come somewhere Midwest where there's less of a tradition of that, then they tend to just be like, oh, wow, I love it. It sounds great. And they, you know, and right. they're not experts in it, but they still enjoy it. So you know, that's, that's good. That's cool. That's cool. So my next question is, um, when when um, when you approach, and we had touched on this before, with not necessarily thinking of these really hard stylistic lines between time periods, but when you're approaching something like like Bird or Talus, and then maybe you're approaching, I I don't, I've just been listening to Stile's album. Um, I can't even remember what it's called, but the it's all passion music. Edward Azurexi, oh, yeah. maybe? Yeah. And uh, there's that one where you, you guys have the Cornish woefully arrayed. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. there's that new commission of woefully yeah. arrayed. So when you're approaching, let's just even we take those two pieces side by side. Yeah. When you're approaching the one, are what differences come to, like, or is there a difference in approach to one versus the other as yeah. a singer, as a musician, and as a group? Yeah, um, so we, we 
obviously we pretty much solely focus on Renaissance stuff, but we have done, we have actually um, had five or six, I think five pieces um, composed specially for us. So yeah. in fact, the only modern stuff we've done has been pieces that are composed specially for us. So that in a way cool. is different anyway, because they they are writing for an early mm. music and they're writing for us. So Yeah, um, that's cool. But they sometimes like, they'll kind of incorporate some of the more similar style anyway. But yeah, it is, um, it, it is quite different. We probably end up talking a lot more about well, we tend to be more fussy about chords. Well, maybe we, maybe it's just the chords that we're not used to singing, I suppose. So sure, sure. A lot more about the tuning. Um, but also, as like I was saying earlier, like the modern composers are much more prescriptive. So sometimes mm. we'll find that there's kind of less to say for the modern stuff because everything's written in and the composer has said, right, we can't start arguing about whether it should be mezzo <laughs> forte or mezzo because it says it in the copy, you know? Right, right. <laughs> in some ways, it's kind of simpler. It takes the... Right. Um, it takes that out of it, you know? It's kind of freeing in a way, as much as people might think it's restrictive. It's, it's, yeah. you know, you can focus really then more on one thing as opposed yeah. to having to think about all of it at the same time. So, yeah. yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. And I, and I think that that idea of thinking more vertically as opposed to linearly yeah. is probably in my kind of observations and research and study is one of the biggest differences as we go through time of, yeah things get much more vertical. Yeah. And yeah. so do you find when you're thinking much more vertically, do you find that that influences the way you sing line? Or do, or, or is that something that you guys are always thinking about? Or how does that influence yeah. those concepts? Yeah, well, I suppose like quite a lot of the stuff about singing, thinking about line is just so intrinsic and it's kind of so much what we do the rest yeah. of the time. It's sort of automatic if you see what I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can only, I bet. I guess now that I ask that question, that's kind of dumb, because I bet you well, do it you, so much. It's not even, you probably don't even think about line ever, because it's literally like riding a bicycle. Of just yeah. this is <laughs> yeah. just what you do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. That's great. And then what sort of, I guess, I guess then your your perspective as a as a singing teacher or or outside of Stile, um, when you do sing more contemporary music. What are some elements, you know, if you had to break music down into like a periodic table of, you know, time, vertical, horizontal, whatever, yeah. uh, what, what are some elements you find in early music that are really prevalent that you see in contemporary choral music in the British yeah. choral tradition? Yeah, I think um, people often talk about this kind of purity of sound, uh, mm. and it's, it's not, I wouldn't about it in terms of brass because that's a very separate issue and in, that's not a problem at all really but, but it's just this yeah. time, kind of making sure that the chords are pure enough that they can really you can hear the harmony which mm. that's the kind of sound that is cultivated in the choral British choral tradition generally anyway and it's yeah. I think it's really important for a lot of contemporary church a lot of contemporary choral music and it's church yeah music. Um, yeah and when you say so when you say purity of sound you're talking about just making sure that well I guess go go further into that of what exactly that you mean by that when when that kind of tradition because like you said it's not necessarily vibrato versus not yeah. yeah but what when you're talking about purity of sound in what ways is that pure or impure yeah. I suppose it's kind of having vibrato is, is is normal and like voices should vibrate because that's how they make the sound but if, right. you're, if you're cultivating a a vocal sound which is going to carry over a eighty-piece orchestra in an opera house, mm. that is going to be a very different vocal production to what you would want 
singing in a choir where you need to be able to hear the voices harmonising and blending together. So mm. probably it's going to involve less vibrato, but not no vibrato, if you see what I mean. Yeah, totally. And it's and I think... like I was saying, it's about the listening more than the singing, and then it kind of clicks into place without you having to think about it. Yeah. I think that's really... What you just said is really kind of an epiphany moment for me of... You can tell, and even young singers can tell when it clicks into place without you think, and then you start to get it to where you're not thinking about that. Yeah. Of just, yeah. okay, this is locking in place. And you can get into the nitty-gritty scientific and musicology and all this other nonsense, but I think it is relatively intuitive of yeah. this is yeah. just these pure sounds lining up, and yeah. you're not thinking about it, you're locking them together. Yeah. That's really and I cool. Think, you know, I suppose, actually, partly, with, with certainly the way we stand in stile but probably other groups as well a little bit we always stand uh, mixed up with the voice parts all mm. interspersed you know and that yeah. just then really encourages the idea that you're part of a bigger thing and that you're listening out and you're you know blending in with everyone else yeah does it do you so if you when you stand in what oh man okay cool i like this this is good i'm having all kinds of cool ideas for my students okay, well, maybe we should <laughs> Start doing this. Oh, I think, you know, when so. we've done that, we've, we've done that with work with student choirs and things, um, and, you know, just said, just for change, try scrambling amongst the voice parts. And it's like, they're like, oh, wow. And now, now I understand the music because I can actually hear what's yeah. going on. It's not just your line and then somewhere over there are the basses, but you can't quite hear them. You know, you're yeah. part of the chords. So. Yeah, and I think that gives you the foundation you need to, to put your line in context without yeah, exactly. losing your line. Right, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's and cool. actually, it also can often um, if if you're standing around next to a tenor and a bass, it's actually easier as a soprano or whatever. You know, it's actually easier sure. to hear. So it can also kind of help to stop these vocal problems of backing mm. your tongue, so you can hear more of yourself because it's a bit easier to hear. You know what you're doing yeah. is actually quite nice as well. Yeah, and that would solve a lot of vocal problems, I think, too. And and give them, especially non-confident singers, when they when they build enough confidence in their group to where they can do it. But it actually, I think, would help them step out of their comfort zone a little bit more to where they're singing more full instead of, like, holding it back. Yeah, definitely, yeah. That sort no, of thing. I think it's, it's just about, like, kind of almost the hardest thing you could do as a singer, but the most rewarding is to sing like, one line against somebody else singing, on your own, against somebody else singing something completely different. You know, that's... Yeah. that's that's where the pleasure is, but it is difficult. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so my my last couple questions here is if you had to pick, this is the stupidest and most impossible question, but I'm just going to say it anyway. But if there was like a, 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 a composer, I don't even actually care if it's an early composer or not, but that you you feel like speaks to your soul more than anybody else, is there a particular composer or two where every time it's the best thing on the program for you? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, probably like pretty much everyone in our group would say William Bird. <laughs> so we just yeah. love singing Bird. Yeah, it's so great. And like he's such a, he, his music is so passionate. You know, it's great. Mm. It's kind of really came to this era in the Renaissance when the musical, the musical language was able to be so expressive. The kind of musical, music has developed to an extent where it can really reflect emotion. And then his personal life and what the reasons he composed was so personal and he obviously had right. a, a, a lot to say in music. And so it's so, in, and we always love singing his music. Because of that. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Okay, well, 
We will definitely, uh, I will definitely listen to, I love also William Byrd, so I, I think it's fantastic. I can't, can't quite get enough, but that's, that's really cool. And what would you say is, well, I guess you just said it, but is there something musical in that expression that maybe sets him, when you, when you say he's expressing emotion maybe a little bit more overtly than some of his contemporaries, what are some musical things that you think make, uh, that the audience would recognize as yeah. being more quote-unquote expressive? Is it his use of dissonance, the line, the rhythm? or Yeah, he uses dissonance in a really interesting way, definitely. And uh, I think it just the way he, the way he writes, composes the text, it mm. fits so nicely for the voice as well. You can hear it's just such, such a natural fit. You could tell he was a singer himself. So yeah. the vocal lines are very nice to sing. They're nicely shaped. And they reflect yeah. the words so well. Yeah. Cool. Well, Helen, I'll let you get back to your tour. What a what, thank you. Seriously, it was just like in the middle of tour in a hotel in Indiana. You're just yeah. taking the time, but I really appreciate it. And I'm, I think it would be great to have you on again. And, and yeah, uh, maybe there's time Steele's coming back to the United States. I can, if you guys are ever coming out towards Utah, just let me know and I can put you in some contact with some people to, to come and perform out here because we would love to have you out here. and to kind of build the early music thing in, in Utah a little bit. So. Yeah, that's great. Brilliant. Thanks, Cam. That's great. Okay. So, so many great insights. Really cool. I loved what she said about the three main focuses of what she teaches those choristers. I would be super fascinated if someone did a study, and maybe I'll do a study myself, of putting different dialects into a spectrograph and, you know, figuring out what kind of singing that dialect lends itself to naturally and we're talking about the bel canto style of singing, which dialect has the least amount of inherent bad habits. Anyway, that's another episode for another day because uh, that's fascinating. But I would really like to play for you all this piece, Woefully Arrayed, as was mentioned in the interview, by William Cornish, performed by Stile Antico on uh, their Holy Week album. The album is called Passion and Resurrection. And the first time I heard this piece, I was instantly mesmerized by it. So cool. It's that early British Renaissance. Lots of really open sonorities, lots of consonants. And it's just a fantastic... There's great use of textures and colors and duetting and all kinds of really great things. So... Enjoy Stile Antico performing William Cornish's piece, Woefully Arrayed.
Oh, man. So good. So good. Clean, clear. Oh, they're amazing. That piece is also amazing. So look for that album. Go buy it. Go download it. Go stream it. However you get your choral music, go get it. Stile Antico, Passion and Resurrection. It's just fantastic. Thanks for tuning into the show today. It was awesome. I love every episode, so obviously you do too. Next week we get to have a really special guest, um, Professor Jesse Roden from Stanford University's Joscan Scholar. So be sure to check in on that episode where we're going to be talking about Joscan and his ensemble Cut Circle. And sincerely, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, spread the word through a rating, a subscription, a like, a review, whatever you do. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.